Again, welcome to Freedom, and to uh, those of you who are now joining us online, uh, welcome to Freedom Online. We're glad to have you be a part of worship today. Um, I will say, totally unrelated to the message, I have been out of town for part of this week. I spent three days in Orlando. Uh, Every year, three of the most important days of the year for me are when I take part in the Exponential Church Planters Conference. It's the largest gathering of church planters uh, in North America every year. it really just is so encouraging uh, at a personal level just to get my tank refilled. But to hear from uh, church planters from not just across the country, but always from around the world, and to just be reminded of how God is at work across this land and around the globe, and to see how the kingdom is moving forward at an unprecedented rate. And I'll share more with you in, in days and weeks to come. But. Uh, Suffice it to say, it is a good time to be encouraged because God is at work doing things on a scale that we get a glimpse of in the book of Acts, and it hadn't slowed down. I mean, he is, His Spirit is being poured out in ways that's transforming just not just lives and families, but whole cities and nations and continents are being changed in our lifetime. And it, it's so cool to see. We had an opportunity this week to hear from a lot of different people, but... A couple that I'll mention to you, uh, it's interesting, most of the names you wouldn't recognize, I as a pastor don't recognize, uh, because God loves to use nobodies and do significant things through them. One of the guys that we heard from is a pastor and church planter in Kenya, who is in the process of, of helping to plant 20,000 churches in Kenya in his lifetime, and they are well on their way to having planted 20,000 churches through one church and and one leader. Uh, I'll share more, like I said, in the future. But it's interesting to note that uh, he shared that in their network of churches, they have a standing policy for anybody in any role of leadership in in any of their churches. They follow the 50% rule because they understand that they must continue to multiply if they're going to reach their country and the world, that you've got to constantly be investing in new leaders. So nobody in any leadership role is ever allowed to do what they do more than 50% of the time. At least half of the time, all the people that you're training have to do the thing that you do. So if you preach, that means you can't preach more than 50% of the time because you need to be training people to preach doing it half the time. If you lead a small group, if you work with children, if you teach the youth, whatever you do, You've got to constantly be training somebody else to do what you do so that the church and the kingdom are being multiplied. We heard from a a gentleman, just such a a mild-mannered, meek uh, fellow by the name of Sam from uh, southern India. He's a fourth-generation church planter. His dad, um, he founded years ago the India Gospel League. And his dad led that ministry for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. And they planted 200 churches in the span of his dad's lifetime, which is really incredible to consider, 200 churches being planted. And so Sam took over for his dad in 1988, not really knowing where to go next with the ministry, but just seeking the Lord for guidance. Well, here we are, fast forward 30 years to 2018. Sam is still leading the India Gospel League In the time that Sam has been leading that ministry, they have planted, just this little ministry in southern India, they've planted 70,000 churches involving 3.5 million people. He feels God's calling on his life is to plant 100,000 churches and reach at least 5 million people. And this just from the most mild-mannered, meek little guy. The kingdom marches onward. The kingdom of God is not losing ground. We're not holding on by our fingernails, just trying to hang in until Jesus comes back. Jesus' mission of reaching and changing the world is being accomplished, and we get to take part in that. Okay, that's not what the message is about, but that is that. John chapter 6 is where we are today. We're in a series entitled, What Did Jesus do as opposed to what would Jesus do? As we've said the last few weeks, if you haven't been around lately, um, the, the whole idea of asking what would Jesus do, we get lost in that because we, we become so confused about who Jesus really was and what he was all about. You know, if you've only experienced Christianity in America in our lifetimes, it's really easy to be mixed up about what Jesus stood for, isn't it? I mean, if you grew up in the Bible Belt, in the last couple or so decades, it's really easy to get confused and think, based on the message of the church, 
Well, Jesus must have preached a lot against abortion and against gays and against Democrats and against, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, just any number of things against drinking and drugs and smoking. I mean, Jesus must have talked a lot about those things, right? Because the church is known for its stand against these things. And then you run into this really surprising fact that when you read through the Gospels, you can't find one word from the lips of Jesus about any of those subjects. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have opinions or convictions about those things, but at some point, we need to put the brakes on and say, hold up. Is following Jesus really about taking a stand against all of these things all the time? If Jesus never even spoke about these issues, we'd better put the brakes on and say, what in the world did he talk about and what did he do? Because somewhere along the way, some portion of the church got misdirected to focus a lot of time and energy railing against some things that didn't even apparently come on the radar of Jesus' ministry while he was on earth. So we're trying to just... Step back and say, could we just take off that lens of what we've been told Christianity is supposed to focus on and ask very candidly, just from the Gospels, what did he say? What did he do? The real biblical historical Jesus. And what can we learn from that? So we've been uh, walking through the Gospel of John. We'll be in it for 10 weeks just asking the same two questions. What did Jesus say and do, and what can we learn from that? And so we pick up today in the beginning of John 6, where it says, sometime after this, you always need to stop when you open up with a line like this and say sometime after what. It does help to frame the story. This is one of the few, very few uh, stories that is recorded in all four Gospels. Other than Jesus' death and resurrection, there's just hardly anything that all four Gospel writers felt was so important that they all needed to include it. This story is one of those. What we find out, and I say that in part so that you'll recognize when I say things that you don't find in John, I'm not making them up. The other Gospel writers give us additional details. If you read all four accounts, you'll discover two significant things had immediately preceded what we're about to read about. One of those is that Jesus, for the very first time, had looked at the twelve and said, all of the things that you've been seeing me uh, say and do, I want you to pair up and now you go out without me being with you and you do the same stuff. You heal the sick, you cast out the demons, and you preach the message of the kingdom of God. To which I'm sure they all looked at each other and said, we can't do that, what's he talking about? And he sent them out anyway. And it worked. It says that it, the scripture says that Jesus gave them power and authority to cast out all demons and to heal all the sick and to preach the message of the kingdom of God. So they went out and did it. They were blown away. I, I wish we had video of the first time that they did it and it worked. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Come watch this. You ain't going to believe it. Let me try it again. You know, I mean, it's just, it's got to be crazy when it happens the first time. And so, you know, he's multiplied. This is the key concept. God's always been about. Go and multiply. That's back to the beginning of Genesis. We're going to return to that in April, that concept. Multiplication is a key concept in the kingdom of God. Jesus is multiplying his ministry, something he's still doing today. So he's got to train them to do what he's been doing. Sounds like what they're doing in Kenya. And so they've gone out in at least six different directions to lots of communities. And you can imagine as they go from community to community, they're getting the same reception Jesus has been getting. So more and more people are following them, and at the appointed time, they all return to Jesus, and guess what? They've all got crowds of people following them. It's wild. It's crazy. Everybody's trying to get to the disciples because they, they've got the similar kind of notoriety to Jesus now because they've got all this power. And so it's just crazy, and Mark tells us at this point in time, Jesus says, time out, guys. We've just got to go, the 13 of us, and get away from all of this. We've got to go get alone. But if you read all four gospel accounts, you discover part of why Jesus is so desperate to go get away and get alone. Because he just found out that his very close friend and relative, John the Baptist, has just been murdered. Herod has just cut his head off. And Jesus is heartbroken. And just like any one of us who've just heard that one of our closest loved ones has just died, just died a tragic sudden death, any of us would need to just get away and only have around us the people closest to us. And Jesus is trying to make that happen as he takes the disciples and goes to Bethsaida. And now there's all these crowds chasing after each of them. And he's saying, you just, guys, you've got to call time out. We've just got to go get alone. 
sometime after this, immediately after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee just trying to, to get where they could escape the crowd by boat. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. Remember, this sea is really a lake. It's like the northern end of, of Mobile Bay. And so when you jump in a boat to get to the other side, they can watch from the shore and see where you're going. It doesn't take very far before they can go, oh, he's headed for Bethsaida. Hurry! If, if we hustle, we can probably catch him on the other side. And they're headed there by foot. And that's what they do. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not be enough, would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will that go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down. About 5,000 of them, that's just of the men. So it's a fair guess. You add in the women and kids, there are probably 10,000 or more people here. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them, and they filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the Messiah? No, they're not willing to go that far just yet. Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. They knew that immediately before the Messiah came, that this prophet, the second coming of Elijah, would show up. They're not willing to call him Messiah, but... He's close. Maybe he's the prophet who precedes the Messiah. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, if we fill in the blanks that the other gospel writers uh, fill in for us, the picture that we get is of these people who have heard, most of them have heard the reports of the healings that Jesus has done and the disciples have done, and they want to get in on that. They're desperate to get in on that. And so it's just become a frenzy of them trying to get to Jesus and the disciples. And when word spreads, oh, they're getting in a boat. It looks like they're leaving. Don't know where they're going. We've got to catch up to them. You can appreciate the fact that there was no time to say, well, let's go home and pack a bag and fix the lunch. And then we'll see if we want to go over there. I mean, can you just picture, it's really impossible to come up with something that's the equivalent of it. But if, if somebody came in today and said, you know, have you heard Bass Pro Shop is giving out bundles of money today? $50,000 per bundle, and they're just giving it to random people who come up. You know, good luck. Are you going to say, well, when church is over, let's go to lunch, and then let's go home and change clothes, maybe pack a bag, get something for dinner to carry with us, and then we'll go see what's going on? No. You wouldn't stay for the closing song today. We'd be out the door and everybody would be racing to get to Bass Pro to see if you could get your bundle of money. Well, I'm just telling you what Jesus was doing was more significant, was more inviting than a $50,000 bundle of money. Because, well, you know, that would be a gift like nobody's ever received before around here probably. Jesus had an even bigger gift to offer. In a time when there were no hospitals, there was no modern medicine, and for most diseases and disabilities, there was no hope. Hope had shown up in the person of Jesus. And word spreads around, this guy actually can heal you with a touch and a word. And so they are just practically fighting each other to get to him. Bear in mind how many of them are sick, how many are disabled. And they've, they've come from a long distance to even get to this point. And now the boat has sailed. And they're going to have to hurry for many miles to catch up to where he's going to land on the far side. By the time they get there, they're exhausted. And what the other gospel writers fill in is... When Jesus sees this, he does two things. I happen to be up to this point in, in my personal quiet time this morning in reading Luke's account. And Luke says very casually, Jesus healed all that needed healing. I just love that thought. Who did Jesus heal? Just everybody that needed healing. I love that thought that today in this room, Jesus would look around and say, Well, I'm ready today to just heal all who need healing. Who'd be ready to receive that? 
I'd just be ready to set free all who need to be set free today. He healed all who needed healing. And then it says, and he just taught them about the kingdom of God. So they spent part of the day hustling as fast as they can, sick, disabled, carrying their disabled and sick family members, getting to the far side. They are exhausted when they get there. Jesus has spent the day working his way through the crowd, healing all the sick, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And when the day is done is the point that where John picks up and says the disciples are getting worried. If you read all the accounts put together, the disciples, Jesus is testing Andrew. But the disciples are asking among themselves, what are we going to do with all these people? They've come a long way. I mean, who knows where they're going to spend the night? We're not going to worry about that because we don't run uh, you know, Holiday Inn Express here. They'll have to figure out where they're going to stay. But if they're thinking we're going to feed them, they've got another thing coming. So it's like, Jesus, send them home. Send them away. We surely can't feed this crowd. And Jesus says, you feed them. See what we've got. Feed them. And it turns out in the whole crowd, there's only one kid. Who brought anything to eat? He's just got five little loaves of bread and two little fish. And Jesus says, have them spread out. Have them sit in groups of 50. I used to wonder why he had them sit in groups of 50. I'm pretty sure I, I understand that better now. If they had just sat together, probably 10,000 people, that would have been a little too overwhelming. But Jesus, as he's been doing, he is raising up disciples who can do what he does and more. He's giving them little bite-sized assignments. You don't have to go minister to 10,000, but you're going to have to go out and feed 50 and then go feed 50 more and then go feed 50 more. Has them sit in groups of 50. And then he takes this little lunch and he prays and gives thanks for it. And then he starts breaking off and giving little pieces to the disciples. Now, I never had caught this before, but if you look carefully at some of the other accounts, it appears that the multiplying did not happen in the hands of Jesus, but in the hands of the disciples. In other words, five loaves and two fishes did not suddenly become 5,000 loaves and 10,000 fish. When Jesus is praying and breaking it, it's still five loaves and two fishes. So how big are the pieces that he's handing to the disciples? Well, there's 12 of them and there's five loaves. There's 12 of them and there's two fish. How much fish do you think they're getting? The kid did not walk up with fish on his shoulders like this. He came with a little lunch. Can you just picture now the disciples walking away as Jesus is going, All right, Peter, you go to start with those 50. And James, you go start with those 50. Here, here's a piece of bread. Here's a piece of fish. Can't you just picture in that moment they're going, To what? This is feeling a lot like a few weeks ago when Jesus said, Y'all go heal the sick. Y'all go cast out the demons. I got a little piece of fish and a little piece of bread, and I'm supposed to go feed 50 and then go feed 50 more. Jesus, I don't even know that I could get my bedtime snack out of this. You go feed them. And from the hands of the disciples, miracles begin to happen. How intriguing. In the eyes of the people, a miracle's happening as the disciples serve them. The disciples are performing miracles. Jesus is just in the middle of it giving thanks to God for what he's doing. And when all that's said and done, the people are ready to make him the king. And he has to slip away. Okay, in that, and I know our time is short, so I'm going to try and be like a fat man going through a barbed wire fence, touch on a few points and keep on moving. So here we go. What did Jesus say and do? Number one. Jesus cared about the physical needs of his followers. His words and actions obviously display that. They showed up sick and disabled, and they wound up hungry, and Jesus cared about all the above. He healed the sick, and he just cared that people were hungry. I just love what that reveals about Jesus because, I mean, it would have been enough just to heal the sick, wouldn't it? And to tell them about the kingdom of God and to go... You feed yourself today, take care of your own lunch. But Jesus, he was filled with compassion and he just cared that they were hungry. And he fed them. Secondly, Jesus sought to involve his disciples in facing God-sized challenges. He did not need the disciples. But he was in the process of reproducing himself. We need to get really clear about this. So much of what we read in the Gospels. In fact, by the way, if you were to just analyze it as a percentage, 73% of what Jesus did in the Gospels, 
he did with the disciples. 73% was not with the crowds, it was with the disciples. You see, what Jesus invested most of his time doing was setting up the reality of what he voiced in John fourteen twelve, When he said, the, the things that you've seen me do, oh, you'll do greater things than that. You will do all that you've seen me do, but you'll do more than that. And if you're like me, I've read that a bunch of times and go, now, how can that be? Jesus healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He spoke to the wind and the waves and made them be still. I mean, is this just Jesus exaggerating? Nope. Are there people who do greater things than Jesus did? Yeah. They do things like planting 20,000 churches in the middle of Africa. Planting 70,000 churches in India. Jesus didn't do that. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus did. You will do greater things than I've done, partly because you're going to be here longer. But also because you're going to have the same spirit that lives in me, and I'm going to go be at the right hand of the Father as your advocate and just be saying, Father, pour it on them. Give them what they need. Let them walk in power and authority. Let them do everything that I've done and more. That's why Jesus didn't just say, boys, get out of the way. I got this one. He could have. He's the creator of the universe. What Vicky read out of Colossians, everything comes from him. Everything exists for him. It's okay if he had done that. But Jesus is multiplying himself over and over so that we, his followers, are supposed to walk in everything that he did. So he just took little pieces of bread and fish and said, all right, boys, you go and feed the thousands. And I'm sure with fearful hearts and trembling hands, they're going... About like what you got at, at communion this morning. Well, Charlie, here's your pinch. <laughs> well, I'll be. We've done that about a dozen times, and it seems like we've still got what we started with. How about some more, Charlie? How about some more? And just passing down the line. And there's more and more bread to pass on. The more that they give out, there more, the more there is to give out. Jesus tried and committed to involving his disciples in facing these kinds of challenges. Thirdly. Jesus acted in faith and gratitude before the solution was in hand. That's hard to do, isn't it? What did he do when all he had was a handful? He gave thanks for what he had. He gave thanks that God would provide for everybody there. Faith isn't faith if you've already got it in front of you that you can look at it. It's a, it's a statement of faith to give thanks for what you can't see yet. Fourth, Jesus worked with what he had rather than complaining about what he lacked. There are so many of us in the church who are just living for the day when we've got more so we can be a bigger blessing. You know, when I get a raise, when I win the lottery, when I whatever, you know, when I get my hands on more, then I'm going to do a lot. No, you're not. If you're not using what you've got now, you sure aren't going to give and use what you've got then. Come on, left side. We're going to have to mix this up. I'm going to wind up preaching to the right. No, it's all good. It is so easy to focus on what we don't have and what we would do if we had more instead of just working with what we do have. Well, when I have more time, when I get retired, when I, when I get more financially stable, if you don't use what you've got, you're not going to get there. We've got to work with what's in our hands and invite God to bless that and to do what he wants to with it instead of waiting until we're in a safe position to do more. Fifth, Jesus was careful not to waste what God had provided. It's interesting. When they all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his followers, gather the leftover pieces of fish so that nothing is wasted. Jesus did not waste resources and he didn't waste opportunities. He did not waste teachable moments. It's interesting to consider what did the disciples show up with that day in hand? Nothing. Right? I mean, they didn't come with... With lunch for themselves. They came with nothing in hand. And when it's all said and done, and they finish feeding everybody, and everybody getting healed and ministered to, and they get away from the crowd, what's left over? 
How many disciples? Twelve disciples. How many baskets? Twelve baskets. So how is each disciple leaving that day? They look like the laundry lady, don't they? I mean, they, they're all leaving, carrying a basket full of food. They, they came empty-handed, and they left everyone carrying a basket of groceries. Now, if you didn't already know this story, and we just read the first three quarters and stopped, and you just knew something about Jesus, where do you expect the leftover groceries to wind up? With the hungry and needy people who came to see Jesus that day, Right? Everybody take a little bit home with you. We'll get some Ziploc bags and some, some aluminum foil. And you, what you just do like after a church meal? Just everybody take a little home. That is not what Jesus did. What's Jesus doing? He is redeeming a teachable moment. Hey, guys, I don't want anything to go to waste here today. I want you to gather everything that's left. Why? Because he is teaching them something. And when it's all gathered back up, it's like, I want you to remember, guys, how much did you show up with? Well, we didn't have anything. How much did you leave with? Well, we all left with all we could carry. Jesus didn't waste any of the food. He didn't waste a teachable moment. Okay, the second question that we want to tackle is, all right, what can we learn from what Jesus said and did? I certainly can't cover it all, but five things that we'll say. The first one is that we can trust Jesus to care for our physical needs. Somebody say amen. We can trust Jesus to care for our physical needs. Some of you came in the room today and you feel a physical need. Some of you are in physical pain right now. Some of you, it was a challenge to get up and it took commitment for you just to get here because of sickness or pain in your body. Some of you are watching and listening online right now because you were too sick or in too much pain to come in. I get it. Don't, don't feel badly for that. Jesus cares. And in many cases, Jesus wants to make it so you don't have to live the rest of your life with that pain and that sickness. Doesn't mean everybody gets instant healing in the moment, but there are a whole lot of folks that Jesus would love to just heal those that need healing. Some of you feel a pain that's not physically in your body, but it's just as real. It would almost sound inviting to have physical pain instead of the pain that you feel because you feel the pain of depression. You feel the pain of rejection or constant fear and anxiety, and it's just controlling your life. And it's so severe that it's hard to, to function. It's hard to come to places like this and be around people like this. And sometimes it's easier to stay home and watch it on the computer than have to come and do that. And you feel it tangibly in your, in your soul. And Jesus cares. And Jesus does not want you to live the rest of your life that way. Some of you are just coming right now with a heart that's stressed and worried because you don't know how you're going to make ends meet. Things have been lean and your situation feels like a financial black hole that you do not know how to dig out of and it doesn't seem to be getting any better on its own. And it's easy to begin to wonder, does God really care about me being able to feed my family and having a roof over my head and being able to make sure I've got transportation to even get to a job and do those things? And this story is a reminder, Jesus cares. He cares that his children stay fed and have a place to live. And you can trust him with these things. He is committed to caring for his kids. He cares about our physical needs. He is Still, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. By the way, it is always a good idea when you are in need to call on the name of the Lord that speaks to your situation. When you need for God to provide, pray to the God whose revealed name is the God who provides Jehovah Jireh. Amen? Number two, we learn that following Jesus will force you to face God-sized challenges that will stretch your faith. Now I want to ask you, a question that I really want you to have to wrestle all the way to the ground. What do you want out of your faith, out of your relationship with Christ, and out of your relationship with His family, the church? What do you want? Do you just want to take it to heaven? Do you just want to make sure that He takes care of keeping your family safe and keeping food on your table and a roof over your head? 
do you just want a circle of friends that you can call on and, and you know, do some things socially with and look to in a time of crisis? Or are you looking for a great, great deal more? Because I will tell you, while Jesus is very happy to provide all of the above, his plan is never to stop there. Tragically, we have... I don't know how long it's taken for us to get here, but for a long, long time, the church in the West has arrived at, at just this really messed up place where our thinking is so off base as to what faith and the church are supposed to center around. And what we've landed on is really almost a spiritual feudal system. I don't mean futile, but feudal, like Middle Ages feudal. You know, where there are, you know, there's the aristocracy and then there's the common people and the, the common people, uh, you know, they pay homage. They, they pay for the, the protection and the provision of the aristocracy for all the commoners. And in a sense, the Western church in modern centuries has operated this way. Oh, we, we have paid spiritual aristocracy who do the real heavy lifting of Christian ministry. And everybody else, we're just commoners. And we come and we pay into the system with our tithes. But you guys worry about the heavy lifting. Y'all do the, the significant Christian stuff. So any of the kinds of things like we're reading about in Scripture, let's have a professional holy man or holy woman handle that. And let us just keep our heads down just taking care of our families and our business. And that was never the message of Jesus. In fact, it was so far opposite of that, I can't even fully express it. That feudal system was never the will of God. That was made up in the minds of men. There, are, there is no aristocracy and commoners. We are all on the same level playing field. The playing field where Jesus looked around and said, You will do the things that I have done and you will do even greater things. To all of us, He bestows power and authority to do everything that the kingdom of God is designed to usher in. To bring in justice, healing, deliverance, freedom. All of these things are ours. And listen, I get it. Most of us, have, if we've grown up in church, we have grown up in a system that looks like the old feudal system. We have not been taught that we can be trained to operate in all of these things. And to even go beyond that, to train person after person after person to do the same thing so that we're not trying to find some super spiritual holy man. I mean, do you realize how many people chase after this? They'll hop from church to church to church trying to find the right holy man who's got the power and we'll come visit on Sundays and get a little dose of that. That is not what Jesus came to usher in. He came to usher all of us into the fullness of the kingdom of God where we walk in power and where everywhere our feet step, the kingdom of God comes. People People are getting set free. Disciples are being made who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who plant churches, that plant churches, that plant churches. And the kingdom of God transforms cities and cultures, nations and continents. And we are called to that today. The power is available. It's happening today. And we're going to get in on it. We are not. Are you with me? We are not of that tribe of people who are willing to say, I'll be a spectator. Fourth row, right side. That's my seat on Sunday morning. And I love Jesus so much. I get there five minutes early. Get the coffee and donuts. Shake a few hands. Oh, it's so great. It's so good. That's the spiritual high point. This is not. This is not the high point. The high point is when you go out there and you get skin to skin, shoulder to shoulder with somebody who needs Jesus or who's trying to grow up in Jesus and you help them walk in fullness. You help them learn to get beyond where they are. Ooh, that's when it gets good. That's when the power really flows. Is that what you want? I do too. It's what God wants. It's what God has for us. So don't dare fall into the trap of looking around and saying, Oh, I just wish we had more. I just hate we've got all these empty seats. I just hate we don't have this or don't have that. Uh-uh. I'll tell you what we have. We have all the fullness that Christ had. We have all the power that raised Jesus from the dead living in us.
Okay, moving on. Thirdly, we learn from Jesus that faith is, that is verbalized and acted on unleashes God's power. You've got to say it, and you've got to walk in it. Jesus didn't say, well, guys, it's a tight spot. Let's get in the holy huddle, and we'll pray about it, and we'll keep an eye on that bread and see what happens. We're going to pray and believe God's going to multiply that bread, and if he does, we're going to share it. Nope. Jesus spoke thanks for God's provision before it happened. And Jesus broke bread and gave it out even when it was just a little bit of bread. He was acting in faith. He was acting like he had 5,000 loaves when he had five loaves. That's what faith does. There's a, a wonderful story. That's the conclusion of the Exodus recorded in Joshua. God's people have been led through this whole miraculous escape from Egypt after generations have lived in bondage and, and a generation has had to pass through the waters once at the Red Sea. It was for their escape. But those people for some reason could just never lay hold to what God had for them. They had such a dumbed down set of expectations as to what God wanted to do with them and for them. It was dumbed down so much that over and over they said, Oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt. I just wish we could go back to being slaves, living in slaves' quarters, eating slaves' food. When Moses is saying, God's got so much more. God wants you to walk in abundance. God has the land. It is flowing with milk and honey. It is out there before you. We can enter into it. They've passed through the waters. They've seen the beginning of God's miraculous provision, but they kept saying, oh, I just wish we'd get back to the good old days, how church used to be. I'm sorry, how life used to be. And God finally said, we're just going to have to let that whole generation die off. They don't have hearts that are, that are faithful to me or, or to what I'm calling them to. And he raised up a new generation and said, I'm going to take them in. But they had to pass through the waters too. Not the waters of escape, but the waters of entry to get into what God had for them. But when he said, all right, now's the time. Giddy up. They're facing the Jordan River and the promised land's on the other side. And the Jordan River is at flood stage. It, it, it's exceeded its banks and it's flowing fast. Jordan River didn't look then like it does now. It's small today. It was not small in those days. And now it's time to cross over, and, and they've sought the Lord. Joshua has about how do we do this? And so when it's time to go, he calls the people out, everybody out of your tents. Two million people, you've got to get across the river. I just think if we as the church were confronted with that today, much of these people can't swim, there's no boats, there's no bridges. Two million people, you've got to get across the Jordan River at flood stage. You know what we'd do today. We'd break up in five camps and make five denominational groups out of it. We've got the bridge builders. We've got the boat makers. We've got those who need to learn how to swim. We've got those who are going to march around it and those who've decided we already live in the promised land. Five different camps right here. We'd make five denominations out of those five beliefs, wouldn't we? Have five different churches by the time the sun set. Joshua said, nope. Everybody, everybody together. Church is going to have to do this together, what God's got next for us. Everybody together, get out of your tents. Come out to the edge of the water. And the priests are going to lead the way, but we're going to all join in. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go before us. They all line up. Here's the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the start of the water. And it is just flowing by. And what is recorded in Joshua is how that unfolded. The people marched out from their tents to cross over the Jordan. The priests carrying the covenant chest were in front of the people. And when the priests who were carrying the chest came to the Jordan, their feet touched the edge of the water. The Jordan had overflowed its banks completely the way it does during the entire harvest season. But at the moment, the water of the Jordan coming downstream stood still at that moment. And it rose up as a single heap very far off, way up the way. It's like the invisible hand of God. The moment that they put their feet in the edge of the water, God went, Shh. that's it. I see you acting in faith and obedience, and I'll stop the water. Now, the interesting thing is, the scripture says just how far up the way he cut the water off. Now, if you've ever watched how a river flows or how water leaves a bathtub even, you understand the moment that they stepped in, it wasn't suddenly dry ground. 
in the moment that they stepped in, God acted, but you couldn't see it right then. Not where they were standing. Because it was miles up the way that God cut the flow off. And as they stepped in, all right, we've done what God said to do. How are your feet feeling? They're feeling wet. They feel like water's rushing over them. Well, what do we do? We're going to need to take another step. We take another step in and you look down and it's like, you know what? I don't think the water's quite as deep as it was. My foot's not as wet as it was. And as they step a little further and step a little further, it's like the, the plug's been pulled on the bathtub. The water level's receding. And every time they take another step in obedience, what had been an impassable obstacle becomes less and less of an obstacle. We can't wait until all the obstacles before us are removed to act in faith. You've got to get your feet wet. You've got to be willing to step in the water when you can't see the provision. Number four, we, must, we learn that we must choose to focus on the greatness of God rather than the size of our challenges. That's true in the story in Joshua. That's true in, in the situation of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It would be so easy to look around and say, I mean, even just in a room this size, to go one little hunch, all these people, this is too great of a problem. What did Jesus do? He looked to the Father and said, thank you, thank you that you are good, that you are loving. Thank you that you provide. Thank you that you love all these people. You're going to focus in those moments of crisis in one of two directions. You're going to either focus on the problem and the crisis or you're going to focus on the one who is bigger than the problem. And one will build your faith and the other one will make your faith melt away. And it is just a conscious decision. Am I going to focus on my bank account balance? Am I going to focus on the stock market? Am I going to focus on the doctor's report? Am I going to focus on what the natural is telling me or am I going to focus on God and just say, God, you were so good. Thank you that this didn't catch you off guard. Thank you that I can trust you with this. Jesus focused on the Father and gave thanks for his provision. There's another wonderful story in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles 20 where Judah, the army of Judah, is surrounded by uh, nations that oppose and hate them and their armies are vast in comparison to the army of Judah. There, there was no way that Judah could win a victory. They were facing annihilation. This is under Jehoshaphat's rule. And Jehoshaphat, as the people are gathered, and they're obviously about to have to do battle, and, and there's just no way in the natural they have any hope. And so Jehoshaphat is leading the people in prayer, and he's praying on behalf of the people. And the final line in verse 12 of his prayer on behalf of the people is this. Such a great closing to the prayer. He says, For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. Some of you today... How many of you, but just be honest by a show of hands, how many of you would say, I have an obstacle in my life or my family that is bigger than, than my personal fleshly capacity to meet it? Most of us. <laughs> if your hand isn't up, give it a month. <laughs> I mean, we, we face it all the time, don't we? Jehoshaphat's just praying what we all need to be praying. Lord, we don't have the power to face this vast army that's attacking us. Here's the great line, though. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Ooh, that, that's one to memorize right now. That's easy enough. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Don't, don't know how you're going to take care of this, but we know where to look for help. We're just going to keep our eyes on you. Well, Jehaziel was the Lord's prophet. And God gives him a word to speak now in response. And just, I, I won't read you the whole of what he said, but part of what he said to the people in response is this. You will not have to fight this battle. That's a word for somebody today. Somebody thinks that you are facing something that's going to take you years and you may never get through. And the Lord is speaking a word over you right now, just a prophetic word. You're not even going to have to fight this battle. I, I've just already gone before you in this. You will not have to fight this battle. Now take up your positions. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you. And so it goes on to say that after consulting the people, I love the picture here. Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon and Moab, and they all killed one another, and Judah won a great victory that day. <laughs> it's just almost laughable. 
they have this inferior force, but they do have some power. They have some weapons and some training. And Jehoshaphat says, all right, we, we need to formulate a battle plan. Here's the plan. Where are our best singers? If I'm in the army, I'm like, who's got the biggest club? Who's got the biggest spear and the biggest sword? No, who are our best worshipers? Where are our best singers and musicians? Put them at the head of the army. What? We want the ones who are really good at worship to be up there. And here's what I want you to do, guys. I want you to just sing at the top of your lungs. Give thanks to the Lord. I want you to worship Him. Don't come in there with some song, Oh, Lord, defeat our enemies. We celebrate you because you kill everybody that we hate. You know, Don't sing those songs. I want you to sing about the splendor of His holiness. You give glory to God. Give thanks to God. And as they're just singing and worshiping, the armies that oppose them just start killing one another. Stand and watch the deliverance of the Lord. You won't even have to fight this battle. You just give thanks to God and let Him usher in the victory. Wow! That is a great God. You can focus on His greatness or you can stress out and need your nerve peeled as you look at the size of your challenges. Final word. We learned that we should think of ourselves as managers of all that God places in our hands. When they had all had enough to eat, Jesus said, gather up the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. We're not making this up as we go along. God is leading us into these situations. And he is training us as he does this early on in the passage. Jesus initiated the situation. It says Jesus picked out Andrew and said, hey, Andrew, how are we going to feed these people? He knew how he was going to feed them. But he's training a disciple. He's training an army of disciples. How are you going to feed them? I don't know. Eight months wages would give everybody about one bite. And when he's fed them, and there's lots left over, hey, guys, don't, don't waste what's out here. Don't let any of it go to waste. I want you to gather it. Jesus is managing all that's going on, and he has a plan for every part of it. It's just a reminder that in, in this whole thing of operating in the kingdom of God, it's not legalistic and it's not heavy, but we do answer to a king. What we would like in the old system is to give our tithe. And then leave us alone with the other 90. Leave us alone with our schedule. Leave us alone with our 90%. I want to live my life. I'll give the holy man 10% as long as he'll deal with God and all that junk. It is much easier to just live my life with my 90% and my time and my agenda. We are but managers of what God has given us responsibility for in his kingdom. And managers can't afford to waste anything, to waste opportunities with people, to waste resources that are put in our hands. It's all his. Not an hour on Sunday morning and not 10% of our income, 168 hours a week, 100% of what passes through our hands. Our time, our money, our relationships are all his. We don't waste that. He loves to make a little into a lot. And along the way to expand our faith and to train up the kind of disciples who no longer look at a little and go, oh, that's all we have. He's seeking to train up some disciples who every time we go, wow, there's a little, there's a big need. What a tremendous opportunity for God. What are you looking for today? A little, little extra help to get through the week? Are you looking for a deeper connection with the God who wants to do with you the same kinds of things that he did through his son, Jesus? May today be a day that God takes our hearts further in faith and takes our feet deeper in the water. Would you join me as we go to him together in prayer? I have a feeling that among us that there are some who just... Don't even maybe know what you were looking for when you came today, but you just knew that something's missing. And it may just be that today you need to take a first step of faith.
Jesus is calling us to take fresh steps of faith. And you may need to take a first step of faith to just trust in what you cannot see with your eyes. To trust in a God that you've never seen in the flesh. But He loves you. He's cared for you. He's brought you to this moment. And He just wants you to trust Him with the rest of your life and eternity. And if that's where you are, if today you want to receive life and a fresh start and the power of His Spirit living in you to change you and work through you, would you just, in simple faith, say, Jesus, I need you. You say it in your heart, He'll hear it. I want you in my life. I don't want to have control anymore. I want you to be in charge of my life and my future. I know you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I'm asking you to come live in me now. Please forgive my sins. Make a new person out of me. Please give me a clean slate and fresh start. The best I know how, I commit to live for you. I promise you, if you pray that with a sincere heart, God heard and he answered. Sins are forgiven. The Spirit of God is being poured into you as we speak. There are a lot of other people listening in the room, watching, listening online. You've already taken that first step of faith. But boy, God is speaking by His Spirit to say, it is time to get in deeper water. It is time to step into new situations where you trust me way beyond what you've done before. It's time to stop walking in the natural and what you can do and to step into places where you trust me with more. If that's just your confession, if that's just where you are, you know today you need to begin to step into deeper water. You need to begin to trust Him with more. I don't want anybody looking around, but would you just raise your hand as a testament? I just want today to step in faith. I need to trust God with more. I want to learn to walk by faith. I want to learn to walk in abundance. God, I pray today you'd pour out gifts of faith around this room, that we would learn to be a people who trust you in spite of our circumstances to do more, to provide more. Make of us faithful disciples just as you did with the twelve. We welcome your work among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.